Hello, everyone, and you are listening to the 55th episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years to report on the hockey news that took place at that time. This week, we are looking at November 8th to 14th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their support has been crucial to our research as they enable us to actually access all the news from 1970. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a few blocks from Lake Erie. The Breakwall Brewing Company crafts wonderful uh, original recipe beers from the breweries that were located in Port Colborne in the late 1800s. They also have some of the best pub food on the planet, and it's my go-to place in uh, Port Colborne. We'd also like to remind you about our Patreon account. Uh, that's located at patreon.com slash hockey50years. Uh, it's a site where you can donate to our to our work, and in return, we provide for you early access to each week's uh, podcast, which is always going to be free, but we'll also have some very special uh, episodes that we are producing that will take a deeper dive into the news items from 50 years ago and also examine some of the more pertinent issues that were taking place at that time, such as the death of Terry Sawchuck, the Kurt Flood case, and the period that was known as the darkness with Harkness in Detroit. That's patreon.com slash 50 years to donate. And we really appreciate all the support you've been giving us so far. Last week was a pretty interesting week when, when you really think about it. We talked about some trades being completed in the National Hockey League. Uh, it was no surprise that the players involved in those trades were not players that were rumored to be involved in trades up to that point. That's always the way it seems to go in the NHL. We had news on the Stafford Smythe tax case. Uh, the cases against Smythe and Harold Ballard were dismissed by an Ontario County Court judge and immediately appealed by the Canadian government. And the story's a long way from being done. That's what we can say right now. And we talked about National Hockey League defenseman Bobby Bond, who had a very busy week as he moved between three NHL teams. And as it turned out, he wasn't quite done moving yet. It was a really busy week uh, at the week we're looking at right now, 50 years ago in the NHL. There was actually way too much news to put in the podcast, and that means we'll probably have a couple of very interesting overtime episodes for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we have the results for some of the key games. We'll also talk about, in one of those key games, a huge brawl between the Canadians and the Bruins that was truly a very ugly scene. We'll talk about the Maple Leafs losing goalie Jacques Plante to a knee injury. And we'll tell you who the person is going to back them up. And the Detroit Red Wings were going to great pains to deny a newspaper story that said a full-scale revolt was in, in progress on the Red Wing team. Of course, that tells you 
with all the denials that something very wrong was going on in Detroit. First up this week, we'll talk about some of the games that went on. And the first game we're looking at is notable not because of the drama and not because of the excellent hockey that it might have provided. And by the way, it didn't. It wasn't because of any remarkable individual performance, but rather because of a prolonged, ugly, major brawl in the first period of the game. Now, the contest itself was won by Boston in a cakewalk as they thrashed the Montreal Canadiens by a 6-1 to score. But very few people were discussing the game, the hockey at least, or the score. It was a brawl near the end of the first period with Boston already leading in the game by a score of 3-1 that dominated the conversation. We're not going to go into a blow-by-blow account of this mess. Uh, We'll rather just give you some audio of how everything unfolded and how it progressed. Uh, It's uh, Boston... uh, announcers I think it's Fred Cusick and Johnny Pearson and, and they su- described it pretty well on how things started and some of the stuff that just went on and on and on here here's the audio f- from that major brawl in Boston 40 seconds left in the period here's Bellamo out to Trombley across to point. shot kicked out by Johnson Redmond blocked by Dallas Smith He's upended, and we've got a penalty coming up to Boston, Dallas Smith. And it looked like tripping John right in the slot. Well, I'll tell you, the Bruins no sooner get one man out of the penalty box and one goes in, and there's Hodge going at LaRose here at center ice. They're both dropping their gloves. The linesman's stepping in the way right here. Right below us, Mahavlich comes off the bench for Canadians, and that'll draw a little fire as we have uh, more than the uh, required amount of players on the ice from both teams. Now here's LaPointe and Cashman going at it at center. And Cashman can really throw them. They're both going at it toe-to-toe. Oh, and LaPointe caught Cashman a good right hand. And there's Sanderson now getting involved in there. And they're all coming off. Both benches are emptying. Even Cheevers is coming on. And we're going to have a Donnybrook right down below us here as both benches emptied. And Kenny and uh, John Forrestal clearing the entire bench of of gloves and sticks. Ari and Lemaire down below us. Trying to figure out who's paired off with who is rather difficult. Cashman, a bad gash on the right eye. And now another one breaks out. at center ice it looks like from here Ken Hodge and Vashon piles on Johnston joins in Tremblay and Dallas Smith Harper is involved Hodge is in there Cashman's got a very bad gash over his right eye but he wants to get involved in somebody here a good left hand by Cashman he's taking on two men and McKenzie right down below us. I think it was Vashon that Cashman really clocked. And now Sanderson on the Montreal bench area as the, the Boston police step in. Fans getting involved. The player, I believe, is Phil Roberto. Sanderson being held by 
two Boston policemen. Right down below us at the Montreal bench area. There's Derek Sanderson right there. I think we ought to call in Don Dumpy, John. Well, I don't know, Don. I don't. I think that uh, naturally, uh, very unnecessary. Uh, certainly, uh, well out of hand, and you could see the feelings were running very high uh, through this whole first period. Lots of body checking. There was a lot of stick work going on, slashing people's feet, and uh, uh, it, very unnecessary. Uh, I don't know if you could say, Ashley, let the game get out of hand. And he's trying to break it up, but he's getting some rough treatment down there. Uh, and they're finally getting the players back on the ice. But I don't know how Ashley's ever going to make head or tail of this thing because uh, I'm as confused as anybody about uh, Hodge started it really down there and uh, at center ice. But uh, we've got a problem now. The Boston police are uh, around the Canadian bench. That's where the activity has centered over the, the last uh, five or six minutes. And uh, Roberto uh, is pointing to somebody about uh, something that happened while he was in the crowd fighting with Sanderson. Somebody from behind must have taken a uh, swing at uh, Roberto. But he and Cash, uh, Sanderson and Don, I don't understand how Sanderson got over onto the Canadian bench to start with. Uh, well, this I can't figure out either, John, but uh, when all of a sudden the rockets uh, started, there he was, right on the bench. But it sure broke up the fights between the players in a hurry with that action going on behind the Canadian's bench with the uh, Boston police involved in it. And now all the players are milling around and it'll be some time now before this uh, is um, straightened away. But if I were John Ashley, I think I'd suspend the 27 seconds left to play in this period and send the teams to their dressing rooms and uh, start the 27 seconds at the start of the second period. I think that would probably be the smartest thing here. I think that uh, we need a cooling off period, definitely. And uh, right now is as good a time as any as far as I can see. Yeah, it was quite a mess. It dominated the airwaves, at least as far as hockey was concerned, over the next week. Uh, as far as the game w went, uh, the Bruins' goals were scored by Johnny Busick, Ed Westfall, Ken Hodge, Dallas Smith, Phil Esposito, and Derek Sanderson, while Mickey Redmond was the only Montreal player able to get one by Bruins goalie Eddie Johnson, who, by the way, was a very active participant in the Donnybrook. Now, to add insult to injury for an embarrassing loss and the mess that was that brawl, after the game, thieves broke into the Canadians' dressing room at Boston Garden and stole nearly $400 worth of equipment. Police said that the culprits broke into the medical room at the garden, through the ceiling, and then gained access to the Montreal quarters. There was no summary uh, given of exactly what items belonging to the Canadians were taken. Our second featured game this week uh, 
was between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the New York Rangers at Madison Square Garden. Now, the Pittsburgh club, coached by former Red Wings and Maple Leaf great Red Kelly, at this point in time are mired in sixth place in the Western Division, going into the game with a record of three wins, six losses, and five ties. The powerful New York club, uh, one of the favorites in the Eastern Division this season, are cruising along with a record of 8-3-1, and one, good enough for second in the East behind Boston. On paper, the game was a terrible mismatch, but of course, that's why they play the games. The Rangers took this one a little lightly, we think, and the final, shockingly, was the Penguins and Rangers skating to a three-all tie. As we mentioned, the Penguins already had five ties going into this game, and Coach Red Kelly said he really doesn't want his team to uh, tie the NHL record for ties. Who wants a team that ties all the time? But he's got a good shot of it this year. Uh, that was the sixth tie in 15 games for the Penguins, and the record over last year was set by the Flyers with 24. And but for a set of unusual circumstances in the second period, the Pens might have actually snapped the Rangers' eight-game unbeaten streak at home. It happened when Brad Park, the Rangers' fine defenseman, set up left winger Dave Ballone for a rush at Pittsburgh goalie Al Smith. Smitty went to the ice, making the save, and Penguins defenseman Dunk McCallum, hounding Ballone, fell on top of his goalkeeper. Apparently, both players thought that the puck was smothered, but it really wasn't. Uh, there was no whistle, and uh, Ballone, he didn't uh, stop. If you knew Dave Ballone in these days, he was a bulldog just like linemate Bill Fairbird. He never stopped until he heard a whistle. He dug the puck out, uh, skated all the way around the net, and tucked it into the unguarded corner of the cage. Now this game was by no means a classic. Uh, it lacked finesse much of the time. Both teams while they showed flashes of brilliance, basically the game degenerated into somewhat uh, mundane affair. Even the crowd wasn't into it at Madison Square Garden. In scoring, it was almost a carbon copy of the Penguins' 3-3 tie in Detroit previously in the wink. Uh, Vic Hadfield scored for the Rangers in the first period, but Nick Harbrook tied it for the Penguins shortly after. Ballone and Ted Irvin made it look easy with two New York goals within 62 seconds, but then John Pernival and Wally Boyer pulled the pens even in the final 20 minutes. A Pittsburgh writer, Jimmy Jordan, kind of summed up the game, saying that in some respects, uh, this contest was, was somewhat satisfactory, coming as it did, to a number of the Pittsburgh players. Why? Because nine of them, led by Dean Prentice and Andy Bathgate, starred for years in New York being former Rangers. Both goalies had a busy night, but Al Smith turned in a, a much better performance than Eddie Jockerman in the Rangers' cage. Uh, Jockerman uh, was adequate, and that's really all New York needed on this night, but Smith turned in spectacular save after spectacular save, and he was named the number one star of the game. The third uh, game we're going to look at this week is a Saturday night contest in Toronto with the Maple Leafs hosting again the powerful Boston Bruins. Seems we get Bruins a lot in these uh, highlights, not only for 
their fistic action, but also because they're a good team. But this one was notable for another reason. It was another game that on paper should have been just a huge blowout for the Bruins. Uh, They're miles ahead of the Maple Leafs on paper. But of course, as we say, there's a reason they play the games. Toronto went into this one having lost four straight games amid reports of trades and firings and a general dysfunction on the Toronto organization. But the Leafs, before an unexpectedly uh, shocked, uh, actually, home crowd, rose up and upset the Bruins by a score of 3-2. The fans in Toronto were appreciative, but actually somewhat stunned. This crowd, though, did respond with probably its loudest response to any Maple Leaf game in the last few years. This was, without a doubt, their noisiest behavior since the Leafs won a Stanley Cup in 1967. Throughout most of the second period, and again late in the third, the shouting, stomping, handbagging melted into a gigantic, uh, just overall noise causing suspicious types to wonder if it was canned noise imported from Boston Garden. Who would ever pipe crowd noise into an arena? I can't imagine that ever being the case anytime. I mean, this is 1970. Usually the Bruins, you know, they're going to intimidate most teams with their brawn, with their uh, edge to their play. But on this night, the Leafs really weren't impressed with all that. Uh, They had an erratic start, but they played at their most boisterous game of the season. And for Toronto, that's how they're going to have to play if they're going to beat a team like Boston. They won't do it often, but they did this night. Make no mistake, the Leafs did make a lot of errors, goofs, and miscues. But on those times when they couldn't clear the puck out of their own zone, which, by the way, on this night was quite often, goalie Bruce Gamble was there to perform the miraculous saves that he often does to keep the Leafs ahead of the Bruins at the final buzzer. The best of the Bruins was, as on many nights, Bobby Orr. Uh, He was at times skating leisurely, then flying, depending on what seemed to be his mood at the time. Uh, He kept trying to ignite ignite his team with spectacular play. He controlled the puck, uh, but the teammates really didn't respond on this one. Uh, Sometimes it was Orr versus the Leafs, and sometimes it seemed like it was Orr winning, but not all the way. Bruce Gamble was the reason. He just would not give up, and he thwarted Bobby on several occasions. Or, by the way, did set up both Boston goals. He also sailed in alone on the Toronto net in the first period, but Gamble made a spectacular save on a laser-like shot. Uh, Or turned Johnny Busick loose in the third period, and again, it was Bruce Gamble that outguessed him. Jim Harrison, Guy Trache, and Billy McMillan were the Toronto scorers, while Derek Sanderson and Wayne Cashman were the Bruins that were able to beat the heroic Bruce Gamble. Uh, Harrison's goal came in the first period. It was a bit of a fluke, and we have how Bill Hewitt and Bob Goldham described that goal for you right here. Rick Lee, coming up the center. Pass to Sittler, over the line with Harrison. Harrison going in and goal, and he's in the empty net as he had it right behind Eddie Johnson. Here's right, but the Silver a shot. That ends up in the corner. Sittler wrapping the Harrison didn't move, and therefore 
it's going to be a goal. We're going to take a look at this again, Bill, and we can judge for ourselves here on that pass out from the corner. Jimmy Harrison being checked and definitely went off his left skate. Now, whether he made a move with his foot or not, here, we'll take a look at it again. We'll see if we can pick it up here on that. Watch his left skate here on the point of that crease as the puck comes out. Right off his heel. Toronto goal, scored by number 12, Harrison. Assist number 27, Settler, and number 3, Selwood. The time, 17.22. Gosh, it was nice to hear Paul Morris's voice once again announcing a goal at Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh... He was not the announcer when I began listening to hockey games, but he took over and he became the voice of Maple Leaf Gardens for me throughout much of my young life and most of my adult life. Uh, he just had a way, a classy, no uh, uh, emphasis, no embellishment, just a very classy, forthright way of announcing a goal so that you knew exactly who scored it, who assisted and what the time was, and really, that's all you need, isn't it? This game, by the way, marked the return to Toronto of defenseman Bobby Bond, who was acquired earlier in the week by a trade, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Uh, Bond played his usual style. He was hitting everything that moved, and even a few things that weren't, and his robust play seemed to infect the rest of the Leafs as well. Uh, Coach John McClellan said Bobby did all right for a guy who's had only two practices in two weeks. He really helped. This was, without a doubt, our best game of the season. The Leafs, by the way, just before the game found out that 41-year-old goalie Jacques Plante, who's actually been one of their few bright lights this season, has stretched knee ligaments and he's going to miss... Uh, from three to five games, they hope not much more than that. We wondered who would back up Bruce Gamble. A lot of people thought the Leafs would bring veteran Marv Edwards up from Phoenix, but Phoenix really thin in goal, needs Marv there. So general manager Jim Gregory made a call to Tulsa of the Central League and brought up young Murray McLaughlin, who's the former University of Minnesota goalie. Uh, he's played very well in, season, uh, in Tulsa this year. Uh, the Leafs have been hearing rave reviews about his work down there so he's in the NHL to be Bruce Gamble's backup and I do believe the Leafs will probably give the kid a start and goal next week and now we get to the dysfunctional mess that is the Detroit Red Wings they were busy this week issuing denials of a full-scale revolt within the team uh, a story published by uh, one of the Detroit newspapers when those stories start coming out, it's usually a sure sign that there are big problems within the team. Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press had a good report on all the controversy surrounding the Detroit franchise. And it wasn't Jack's paper, by the way, that had the story about the revolt within the ranks in Detroit. Jack said that when he talked to Red Wings coach Ned Harkness, Harkness uh, just had the feeling that he was crucified in the in one of the accounts of the Red Wings 3-3 tie with uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins a week previously. The story said 
that if the Red Wings are going to do anything this season, they'll have to fire their coach, and it claimed that there was almost open revolt within the team. The, the basis for that story was Roy, goalie Roy Edwards' comments after that tie, in which he said that he'd been playing way too much, and he just couldn't go on that way, given the number of shots the Red Wings are giving up each game. Edwards gave up the tying goal on a rebound with just two minutes and three seconds left in the game. Edwards said, I can't believe that right up. There's not a damn bit of truth to it. Roy went on to say that it, uh, he was completely flabbergasted by the report. It sounded like it made him leading a rebellion. And Roy said that was the furthest thing from the truth. Roy's quote was, I'm 100% for Ned, and I think the rest of the guys are too. Which, of course, is the exact right thing to say by the goalkeeper whose loyalty to his coach is being questioned. Edwards was tired, but uh, according to Ned Harkness, it was the consensus of, quote, everybody in the Red Wings organization that Edwards should be playing against Pittsburgh. Harkness said we needed to put two wings, two wins together, and uh, backup Jim Rutherford had just played 34 games in his rookie pro season last year and only one this year, so he probably wasn't going to be up to the task. So one might question uh, Harkness, saying, "Well, Rutherford's got to play. Edwards can't go on like this. When's he going to play?" Ned says we figured to work Rutherford in the games out on the West Coast. Uh, they start a five-game road trip coming up this following week, Thursday in St. Louis. Harkness thinks his team w was working very hard, but as he said, uh, it's just like what the World Series was in 1970. You can hit the ball like it's going out of the park, and then Brooks Robinson grabs it, and there's nothing you can do about that. He says that's the kind of goalkeeping we've been going against. Everybody's playing like world beaters against the Red Wings. Not the players' fault. It's those damn other great goalies. Well, Jack Barry asked Harkness if he'd talked to uh, Bruce Norris. He said he had. And he asked Norris, gave him uh, a vote of confidence. And Harkness said he didn't need a vote of confidence. Ned's response was, I'm confident of myself. My shoulders are broad. And I've been in the ring before. As for the booze... The people don't bother me. They paid to get in, and that's their right. They just want to see us win. And so do the players, Ned. The very next day, the Toronto Star ran a large story. No byline, though, just special to the Star. So it's one of those contract writers in other NHL cities, possibly even Jack Berry, that submitted this story to Toronto, the Toronto paper. And uh, it described the Red Wings owner, Bruce Norris, uh, reaction to the published reports of the dissension and open revolt within the club now in a uh, scrum outside of a detroit uh, the detroit dressing room after a game he was asked about the rumors of open revolt within the team <laughs> and norris six foot four multi-millionaire shouted at the reporter i should jolt you one in the head and if i were the other guy referring to coach ned harkness i wouldn't blame him if he jolted you one in the head as well norris was literally livid with rage uh for the uh, report in the detroit paper that said the players were revolting as we had jack berry describe it above norris actually held a meeting 
with Red Wing players, with Harkness, and with general manager Sid Abel, and it's believed to be the first time a meeting of that type had ever been held in the entire history of the Detroit Hockey Club. The, the scene in the corridor that we just talked about with Norris's quotes happened after the 30-minute meeting with Sid Abel and the rest of the guys. Asked what had taken place in the meeting, uh, Norris shouted, you newspapermen have cost me a lot of money today. I had to fly here and leave my business. He went on to say, as for what went on, it's none of your damn business. You'll print what you want to write anyway. That's when Norris threatened to jolt the reporter, but the reporter, to his credit, persisted in asking what had happened at the meeting, and Norris just turned around and said, who said there was any meeting? The reporter's reply was, pretty obvious you had a meeting. We've been waiting all out here for you. So Norris said, you obviously know more about it. What's going on here than I do? I obviously did nothing of the sort. It's you who are saying that. And then the reporter asked uh, Norris, well, why did you come here anyway? Norris has replied, do I need your permission to come into this building? Following that angry exchange, uh, there was no one who was at the meeting that would make a comment on what might have happened. There was one exception a veteran player whose name was not reported simply said it wasn't a very exciting meeting. And that probably uh, describes most meetings between owners, general managers, coaches, and players. Nobody's going to want to say anything to the guy who underwrites all the costs. There was one notable uh, absentee in the meeting, and I found this really interesting when I read the stories back at that time. That was Jim Bishop who is now known as the executive director of the Detroit Red Wings. Bishop, who's a former successful lacrosse coach from Oshawa, Ontario, he was actually that until he vaulted into this Detroit job in an inexplicable manner uh, a year and a half previously, did not make an appearance. So you could uh, guess that maybe he's not in the loop, he's not an influential player, or... It seems that everybody on the team, players, coach, and GM, are in trouble. And the only guy who Norris is not blaming for all this is Jim Bishop. Bishop has too much influence in this Detroit organization, and it will not end well for him or the team. Mark my words on that one. In a future special episode that we'll produce for our Patreon subscribers, we'll devote the entire show to examining the Darkness with Harkness story at length from start to the present. Stay tuned and subscribe at patreon.com slash hockey50years. It was a very busy news week in the NHL, and we got a lot more news for you as well. A Montreal Canadiens lost center Larry Plough for an undetermined period of time, likely at least a couple months, with torn knee ligaments. That's a tough break for the youngster. He injured the knee during that fight-filled game against Boston on Sunday, of which we gave the highlights uh, to you now. And with uh, the Plough news comes also uh, some indication that retired 
left winger John Ferguson was making noises that he was willing to listen to any offers that Canadians general manager Sam Pollock might have in mind to entice him to return to the Habs. Here's what Ferguson said on the Monday uh, starting the week. His comment was, let's put it this way, my mind is open on the subject, possibly more so today because I'm an employee again. Uh, what Fergie is referring to is the fact that the men's and women's apparel business in which he was a part owner has been purchased for almost $1 million by the McDonald Tobacco Company. He, Nelson Stoll, and George Gottlieb each owned a third of the business. They will still run the enterprise, but they won't have the headaches of ownership to encumber them. Quite interestingly, when Habs coach Claude Ruel was asked about a possible return about Ferguson, he expressed genuine surprise and said that all this was news to him. It, it sounded at that point like somebody was no longer in the loop about decisions that would possibly be made for the club, especially when just a few days later near the end of the week, John Ferguson agreed to return to the Canadians saying that he was in pretty good shape and he thought it wouldn't take long before he'd beginning playing games. Ruel had no comment. Back with the late Maple Leafs for a minute, General Manager Jim Gregory was telling reporters that as the Leafs continued to flounder before their Saturday evening win against Boston, that is, he was not in a hurry to make a trade and would not make a deal out of a sense of panic. A couple of days later, Jim Gregory did make a trade, and while it was not something major, it was a deal that was received with good nature by all the Maple Leafs fans. The Leafs brought Bobby Bond, a crowd favorite for years with Toronto, uh, back to the Maple Leafs. Bobby had been traded to St. Louis from Detroit by way of Buffalo last week, but he never did report or play a game for the Blues. The Blues sent him to the Maple Leafs in a straight-up swap for 25-year-old left-winger Britt Selby. Selby hadn't played very much at all on left wing this year for the Leafs and they felt that Bobby Bond would give them a lot more than they were getting from Selby. Bond of course was exactly the type of player that Toronto needed on the blue line right at this point in time. While Bond's skills have deteriorated to the extent he's no longer really a front liner in the NHL, his hustle and game sense can't help but rub off on the younger Leaf rearguards. And it should bring an end to a nomadic couple of weeks for Bobby Bond back once again in Toronto. But that added yet another dimension to all the trade talk around the Leafs. Bond's return gave a little more fuel to the uh, fire that the Leafs were looking at bringing back another uh, veteran defenseman, Carl Brewer, who retired years ago and then retired again this fall from the Detroit Red Wings. If Brewer were to agree to come back to the NHL and partner up with Bond, as he did with uh, the Leafs' early Stanley Cup teams of the uh, 1960s, then the Leafs would uh, make a trade with Detroit, sending draft picks or a couple of young prospects to the Red Wings. We'll have to see how that turns out. Another trade rumor was being reported by Ed Conrack of the Philadelphia Daily News. This one has defenseman Ed Van Imp, the captain of the Flyers, going to Toronto 
by way of Boston. A three-way trade between Toronto, Philadelphia, and Boston. What do you think the odds are of that ever happening? And back to the Red Wings for a minute with a little bit of nice news. In that 3-3 tie against the Penguins earlier this week, Gordie Howe scored the 770th goal of his National Hockey League career. Of course, that's the most ever in history, and it is 226 more than the man who is in second place in the all-time list, Rocco Richard of the Canadians, who netted 544 in his illustrious career. Here's the goofiest stat of the week that I came across. Do you know who leads the Philadelphia Flyers in winning goals so far this season? I'll bet you none of you would have guessed Wayne Hillman. Decidedly a defensive defenseman who provides very little offense. But guess what? Wayne Hillman has two game-winning goals this year. And that's double the amount anybody else on the Philadelphia club has. A little bit about our favorite expansion team of this uh, season, the Buffalo Sabres. The Sabres so thin on the blue line this week, they use veteran left winger Reggie Fleming back as a rear guard. The experiment really didn't go particularly well, although Reggie gave it 150%, and you know Reggie Fleming would give uh, nothing less than 150%. Problem for Reggie, he made an ill-advised pass that gave Flyers' Simon Nole a breakaway that cost the Sabres a a big goal this week. Reggie tried his best, but it's not where he's played much in the past, and uh, I don't think he'll be playing much there in the future either. But there was a little bit of good news in Buffalo this week. The Sabres uh, were going after, you remember, two of their players that retired during training camp, Phil Goyette and Don Marshall. Early in the week, uh, Marshall agreed to a contract with Buffalo and said he would report to the team immediately. Marshall's a wiry type who's always in shape, no matter what, and we think he'll be playing before the end of the week. And a day after Marshall uh, signed, Goyet announced that he was coming back as well. He was very happy with the contract that Imlac had given him. Little extra money never hurts convincing a guy to play. And Imlac says that getting Goyet and Marshall back improves that team by about 40%. One must remember, though, the Sabres have been an awful team, and 40% of zero is still zero. You'll remember we told you the Red Wings acquired young center Don Luce from the New York Rangers last week. Well, in his first game with the Red Wings, Don fell, struck his head on the ice, and he was very woozy as he left the ice and then the Red Wings bench. He spent the night in a hospital for observation. Red Wings were worried that he'd had a uh, major concussion, but he was released the next day with the doctor saying that he just had his bell rung. Interesting tidbit out of uh, Rochester, New York, of all places. Rochester Americans are the farm team of the Vancouver Canucks. And uh, they have a hockey reporter by the name of Hans Tanner, who's actually an outstanding hockey writer. Well, he's reporting this week that the Canucks are going to operate a Western Hockey League team in Alberta next season, either Calgary or Edmonton. That will be the principal farm club for the Canucks. And Tanner says he knows who's going to run it. It will be Bert Olmstead, 
the manager coach of the team. Would that give uh, Hal Laco a little bit of a worry that Burt would have eyes on his job? Well, it should, because I think Homestead wouldn't mind returning to the NHL. Here's an anecdote that appeared in the Boston Globe this week about National Hockey League refereeing. Uh, The Bruins have been complaining about uh, how NHL referees uh, refuse to enforce fouls committed upon the Bruins' star players. Boston hockey writer Tom Fitzgerald illustrated the point with a story about Bobby Orr being tripped right in front of NHL referee Wally Harris. And if you ever went to games in Buffalo in the early 70s, uh, you know how bus- Buffalo fans felt about Wally Harris. Well, Orr got up this one particular time and complained to Harris about tripping. Harris looked Bobby right in the eye and said, quote, that's the only way they can stop you and refused to assess the offender with two minutes in the sin bin. Now, Tom Fitzgerald was very quick to point out that it was not Bobby Orr who related this story to him, but rather another player on the ice who uh, witnessed it take place. We have a couple of negative notes for you here. We don't, but we have to, we try and report everything. Uh... It was sad news for Tommy Williams of the North Stars. Tom's wife, Emily, age 27, passed away this week at the couple's home in Richfield, Minnesota. A police uh, attended and said Mrs. Williams was found in a car in a garage in their home by her husband. They said that uh, she was dressed and looked as if she were about to go out and the car had been running previously and no foul play was suspected. Uh, Tommy and... Uh, Emily had five children and we wished uh, them all well in this very terrible time. Joanne Hull, wife of hockey star Bobby Hull, has filed for divorce from Bobby on grounds of physical cruelty. Mrs. Hull, who was 35, charged that her husband kicked her in 1966, slammed the door into her face in 1969, punched her in the mouth, and threw her off an elevated porch again just this past July. And again last month, he is accused of kicking her. She is asking for a substantial uh, part of Bob's salary, custody of their three children, and a share of the proceeds of the sales for their home in Chicago. She did not mention anything about Bobby's other assets other than she wants a percentage of his pension and what he's worth. And as the week drew to a close, we've got another story that we'll be following up as well in the coming weeks. The San Francisco Chronicle reported on Friday that SEALs general manager Frank Selke Jr. had submitted his resignation to SEALs owner Charles O. Finley. Finley told the newspaper that he had offered Selke a new contract, but the general manager had refused to sign it. Now, this is a contract dispute. Make no mistake about that. Uh, The center of this mess is that uh, the contract Selke signed with former owners of the SEALs apparently has not been lived up to by the present owner of the SEALs, who said he is not liable for contracts signed before he got there. Well, he purchased the team lock, stock, and barrel, and one would think 
that he is living up. It's possible, given the way contracts were handled 50 years ago, there were clauses that were not agreed to in writing in the contract, but were promised verbally that aren't being taken uh, care of. Selkie claims the SEALs owe him a lot of money. Finley says he doesn't see anything like that. And he suggested that Selkie contact the Knox brothers in Buffalo, now the owners of the Buffalo Sabres. The Knoxes are formerly 20% owners of the SEALs. And Finley told uh, Selkie that maybe they would make good on the money that Frank says he's owed. It's difficult to see how they could be liable since they sold the team. They've been paid for uh, their stake in the team and they're no longer associated. Selkie's only comment on the story was that he did not resign, nor did he quit, and that the matter is now in the hands of his lawyers. Stay tuned because there's going to be more to this, including what happens with the SEALs executive vice president, Bill Torrey. So that's our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn in this week in November 1970? Well, we learned about a huge brawl between the Bruins and the Canadians that was truly an ugly scene. One thing we found out was as time was about to go on, this would not be an unfamiliar sight in National Hockey League arenas. We learned that the Maple Leafs lost a veteran in Jock Plant with an injury, uh, but they also gained a veteran when they bought Bobby Bond back to Toronto, and fans were happy about that. And the Detroit Red Wings went to great pains to deny a revolt within the team. Methinks the owner doth protest too much. Next week, we'll have these stories for you. More on the departure of General Manager Frank Selke Jr. from the California Golden Seals. We'll talk about the Buffalo Sabres and General Manager Coach Punch Imlach making their first trip to Toronto and the Maple Leafs. And we'll have all the details on that game, which is still discussed in Maple Leaf and Sabre circles today. And this is an interesting story. We have details about the possibility of an NHL franchise for Edmonton. Wait, wait for Edmonton? It seems that it's not just a pipe dream. There are people in the city actively working towards bringing National Hockey League a team to the Edmonton uh, Omniplex when it is completed. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Andy, by the way, is now in the process of producing podcasts professionally. If you have an idea for a podcast that you'd like to bring to life, get a hold of me. I will hook you up with Andy and he'll put something together that will really sound pretty good to you. Andy is a true media professional who is multi-talented in many, many areas of broadcasting. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. And right now, they're in the studio putting together 
more new music. I spoke to band members this week. They're having a great time with the socially distanced uh, studio sessions, and I think we'll be able to hear some some new pieces by the RAA in the very near future. Other musical pieces and sound effects in our podcast are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files in the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and all the fine publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under the uh, page 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, the podcast can be downloaded through your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, everyone, for your support over the years and for tuning into our show again this week. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-